Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you to Miss Kellyanne. Thank you to Miss Lee. Uh, like they said, my name is Jamie. Uh, I'm just as a brief introduction. I am the uh, I serve as uh, the discipleship pastor and college pastor here. Uh, that's new to me, right? I just started a new role, and I'm very excited. Uh, and thank you so much to those of you. I wasn't looking for any applause, but thank you guys. I get, but but that's that's kind of my point, right? You guys have been so encouraging to me, so encouraging to my family. Uh, over the last several uh, weeks, months, uh, years, really, if you want to track it back that far. Uh, so thank you guys. I'm very grateful to be a part of this church family. Um, as Kellyanne said a minute ago, welcome to Connection Church Athens. For some of you, welcome to Athens, right? Uh, if you've been in town uh, any time over the last couple of, uh, couple of days trying to get some groceries right, you know that college students are here, and they are here with a vengeance, buying up everything uh, with their parents' credit card that they can find. Uh, right, so college students are here. Um, they're very excited for the semester, but so are we, right? We are excited for this fall in our church. We are excited for what God is doing in our church uh, and, and, and all the different areas of our church and are really just uh, excited to kind of get, get rolling with the semester. So uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been going through the first five books of Psalms. Uh, as Liam mentioned, we really love preaching through books of the Bible, but Psalms would take us uh, a very large investment of time, so we're going to break it up and go little by little. So the first five Psalms, uh, what I've loved about this short series, right, is it's, it's kind of allowed us to dive into some maybe some, some more obscure passages that we may not read every day or every week, uh, maybe outside of Psalms 1, uh, and really just gain a more in-depth understanding of, of, of these chapters um, that are so rich in Scripture uh, that are truly God's Word here for us uh, here on earth to, to see how, how, how God works and how God has moved, but also to see how Christ is foreshadowed, right? And so that's my commitment this morning is, again, in Psalm chapter 4, we will see uh, that Christ is foreshadowed. Uh, and we've read it out loud. Miss Lee did a great job for us. Uh, you probably already can identify where that is. We, if, if we've gotten this practice of, of trying to identify Christ, even in the Old Testament. And some of y'all have probably seen that. Uh, another thing I like about Psalm 4 uh, is that it's fairly direct, right? It's, it's simple, it's direct. I do well with that. I like simplicity. I like straight to the point. Uh, I'm not a very complicated person. Um, if your Bible is like mine, we'll go ahead and kind of get into it. It says uh, at the very top, before we even get into the passage, it says, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Uh, a psalm of David with stringed instruments. Liam taught us a couple of weeks ago, right, that a lot of these psalms were almost treated like an old Baptist hymnal, right? It was like a songbook that, that the nation of Israel would use, and they would sing, and they would play music with it, uh, and they would, they would repeat these psalms over and over until they were written on their heart, right? They would know these principles. Um, like many of us know a lot of old hymns that maybe we grew up with if we've been in church for a while, right? Uh, psalm 4 this morning, it's got some prayer language, uh, but it's also a song, right? That they, would, they would sing these words and remind themselves of God's faithfulness. What David's doing here is he's making a bold declaration, uh, like, like we read just a minute ago. Uh, he, this is not passive, uh, kind of maybe type of language, right? He's, he's, he's bold with his language. Uh, and at the end of the day, I think his, his, his message is this. His message is that God has been faithful before, and he will continue to be faithful uh, again. He will prove himself again. You know, as, as, I was, as I was reading this passage, especially in light of, of, of worship here and how, how awesome our worship was this morning, uh, I was thinking that stringed instruments are not what I don't, I don't know that I necessarily would have chosen, right? For, for David, he's going to call out some enemies, right? He's making these bold declarations. 
it's kind of hard to imagine like harp music playing in the background. I think we needed Jeremy on the bass, right? Uh, maybe, maybe John on the drums, uh, but it obviously didn't work, didn't work like that back then. Um, the other thing I want to mention briefly is just kind of the setting that we have, right? Just, just to get some background information. David tells us in verse 1 that he is under distress. Uh, David is in a trying time. Uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, some commentators say uh, this was written shortly after Psalm chapter 3. Um, and we, if, if you were here with us last week, we talked about how David uh, and his son Absalom, right? He had all this family drama going on. His son was trying to dethrone him as king. David was forced to flee for his safety. And so we read about the family drama. Some commentators say that it was written in relation to that. Others say that there was some kind of like agricultural crisis, right? Whether it be uh, drought, famine, uh, some sort of deal where there was a shortage of food and the people had become uh, dis disgruntled, right? But regardless of the fact uh, of which kind of scenario we're dealing with, maybe it was both, who, uh, we don't know exactly. Um, but we know that this was a tense and a stressful time for David. And we see his response in the midst of a, of a, of a stressful and trying time. So let's just dive in, right? I want to read, I want to read verse 1 for us uh, and just call out a few themes that we see. And then I also want to just call out, call out where we see kind of Christ foreshadowed. So in verse chapter 1, David says, Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. He's almost, he's almost commanding God in a way, God. He, he knows that God is faithful. He's telling him, answer me, give me relief, right? He's using bold language. We learn several things from chapter 1. The first is this kind of sets the stage for the rest of the psalm, right? We see David approach God with confidence. He doesn't, he doesn't approach him, him mildly or weakly. He approaches God with confidence. And he knows that his, his confidence approaching God is not based on his own merit. It's not based on his own righteousness, his own works. But it's, it's focused on, on God's character. He says, give me relief from my distress, have mercy. And before that, he says, my righteous God. He is calling on God's character, not his own. Because David knows God has proven himself to David time and time again throughout the story of his life. Fortunately, in Scripture, we have David's story. You read a lot of 1 Samuel, right? We get a lot of the story of David. And we see God's faithfulness over and over and over. David knows that God is merciful. He acknowledges his distress, right? He acknowledges his distress from whichever situation that he's found himself in. He knows that it's not good, but he also knows that he can approach God, much like Paul tells us to in Romans 8, right? Like a child approaches his father. Paul says that, that we should call him Abba Father. We can cry out to God and say, Abba Father, which is a sign of, 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 of love and of, and of nurturing, a father and son type relationship. You know, I pray, I pray that my children all the time, I pray that if they ever find themselves in, in a season or in a time of struggle or in a time of distress, I pray that they will run to me, that they will come to me, that they will have confidence in me to hopefully help them with whatever situation that they have going on, right? I pray that they will come to me confident that I'm not going to turn them away. And God wants us to approach him the same way, right? We can approach God with that same childlike confidence, we see that God has shown David mercy his entire life. His entire life, David has experienced God's mercy. And so the more that we call out to God like a spirit of a child, right, the more that we run to God when we find ourselves in times of distress, we give God the opportunity to be, <clears throat> to be faithful in our life. We give him more opportunities to prove himself faithful to us. 
And when we are in Christ, we learn this from the New Testament. When we are in Christ, we get the opportunity to be adopted as sons and as daughters into the kingdom of God. We become part of God's family, and we know that God will hear us, and God will show us mercy, and that we can approach God confidently no matter what situation that we find ourselves in. Most of us here, I think, would agree with that statement. I don't think I'm saying anything that most people are like questioning, right? Uh, like, I think we all kind of know, right? We can approach God. God is good. God is just. God is loving. But the true test of our belief is not come when everything is going well. The true test of our belief in that statement don't come when things are going the way that we want them to. The true test of, test of that statement comes when everything around us is falling apart, right? When we lose control, when we have a, there's a situation and we, are, we know that we are powerless to deal with it ourselves. That's when we have the test of that kind of faith that David talks about here. So we're about to look at David's declaration to those around him, right? In the next few verses, David is going to kind of call out his enemies that he sees. He, he's, he's in this time of distress. He's Israel's leader, and he gets all of these responses from people that are freaking out, that are not having, uh, not having uh, good examples of faith. And so as we read that, right, I just want us to think about it as a church for a minute. I'm so glad that we are a part of a church that isn't about preaching a message that says, hey, let's read Psalm 4 and let's just try to be like David, right? Let's just try to emulate uh, who we see in Scripture. Let's try to work hard. Uh, let's try to just obey God and do our best. Right and try to become the faithful servant that, that, that uh, verse 3 talks about. Because that message will lead you to a life of a hamster on a wheel. It will lead you to just chase and chase and chase and constantly be let down and never be fulfilled. And Christ will never play the role that he's designed to play with in your life. Connection Church is here to preach that Christ is the faithful servant. Jesus is the one that fulfills all of Scripture. We are powerless to work ourselves up to God. We will see ourselves in those that oppose the faithful servant, not in the faithful servant themselves. Paul says it like this. He says, but God in his great mercy made us alive in Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. That's the message that Connection Church is all about, and I'm so thankful to be a part of it. David knew that. He called on God with confidence because of that. And that's the only perspective in the world that's ultimately going to lead us to have peace. It's not going to be working. It's not going to be trying to earn our favor with God. It's going to be just putting our faith in Christ that will lead us to a, to a peace and a confidence that will transcend whatever circumstances that we find ourselves in. So what I want to do now, I want to look at the next, uh, the next few verses. Uh, looking at uh, verses 2 through 7, we're going to see three types of reactions to distress. Some of these will be up on the screen, um, but there's three common types of reactions to distress that I think we're going to see. Right? We all have human instincts that kick in. Anybody that works in, in law enforcement or maybe firefighters in the room, uh, we've got some counselors, right? Uh, maybe doctors, nurses. Um, everybody can speak to that. When, when people find themselves in a time of distress, we all have natural reactions that we just instinctively revert to, right? Trust and faith are typically not, not one of those. In this passage, David addresses three that come natural. The first example that we see, starting in verse 2, is what I'm going to call a mocker. I've kind of labeled them for us this morning with some terms. These are uh, not biblical. These are just my kind of uh, term that I came up with to kind of label these responses that we see. And the first one is a mocker. The mocker is the person that, that really almost gets excited for things to go wrong just so that they can have an opportunity to mock uh, people of faith. They say things like, man, I can't, you know, I can't believe you still believe in that stuff. 
where's your God now, right? Uh, things are go- you, were, you were all with God when things were going good, but where's God now? Things aren't going, going so well now, right? My favorite maybe is like, oh, well, why do bad things happen to good people, right? Like, at least give us something original. We've all heard that before. David says that they seek false gods. And in ancient times, that may not be the false gods that we have today. Maybe it was stone structures. Maybe it was metal things that they built to try to earn favor from some kind of, some kind of idol other than Yahweh, other than the God of Israel. But think about, our, think about our culture and our context for a minute, right? The mocker is the one that worships things like acceptance, like status, like power, image, money, right? When things happen in their life or, or maybe in society around them that challenge the thing that they worship, that challenges their idol, they start mocking God and his people because they, think, they can't think of anything better to do. Typically, the mocker is one that comes across as desperate. They start searching and grabbing in a desperate way for anything that will give them a sense of security. They seek comfort in substance, comfort in material things, relationships, or things that will give them a temporary sense of satisfaction or security. They seek things that were created rather than the creator himself. David responds to the mockers, right? David responds by calling on his experience with the Lord. In verse 3, David says, I know God will answer me because he's always answered me before. And he's done it without exception. I know, and David says, look, I'm, I know I may not even get the answer that I'm looking for, the answer that I want. But God has proven himself faithful to me that I know that whatever answer he gives me is going to be for my good. Verse 3 is where we get a little bit of prophecy, right? Some of you have probably already seen this. We know that God set David apart, but ultimately David was not the faithful servant. David is referring to himself as the faithful servant, but we've already established in, in the first few books of the Psalms, right, that David was not unfaithful, or David was not faithful, he was unfaithful. We, we know the story, right? He had to write Psalm 51 and just in, 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 in response to some terrible things that he did. If we're resting in David's faith, faithfulness, then we're, we're kind of hopeless, Right? But the reason that we can approach God with confidence is not because of David's faithfulness, it's because of Christ's faithfulness. Thank you, David. Whoever kicked that over. It's all good. It's all good. The reason that we can approach God with confidence is because of Christ's faithfulness, not David's faithfulness. Our confidence comes from passages like 1 Peter that comes to mind, right? 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. In the Old Testament, right? Priests had to go through rituals and they had to go through a bunch of ceremony to, to go, in, to go into, uh, into the temple right, or into the tabernacle. They had, to get, they had to become ceremonially clean. They had to go through all of these rituals to be ceremonially clean so that God would re- even receive their offering, so that they could even, even have access or have any, kind of, any communication with God. But what Jesus did was he came and he lived a life that was truly clean, that was truly set apart, truly holy. He didn't have to do all the rituals because he was clean himself. He was completely faithful with God. He fulfilled the office of priest that we see in the Old Testament. And through Christ, we have direct access to God the Father, to God the Creator, the God that loves us, the God that created us and cares for us. And just like David, we can come to God and we can approach him boldly and confidently and not be discouraged when we come across these mockers, right? The people that try to make fun of people of faith. God has proven himself. We don't have to listen to this response. 
So let's move on. Let's look at another common reaction that we see. We're going to look at verse 4. And I've got to give credit to my 8-year-old son, AJ, for this, for this title, right? I call this next one the Rage Monster. <laughs> There's some YouTubers out there called Dude Perfect. Uh, that if, if you've been around a boy about AJ's age, you probably have heard of them. But they do all these videos, right? They, they do cool trick shots, and they do all this stuff. They spend a ton of money on videos. Um, but almost all of the videos, one of the guys at the end, he goes Rage Monster, right? And he destroys everything. He tears down the whole set. He loses his temper, and kids think it's hilarious for some reason, right? Uh, I think it's kind of wasteful, personally, but when you're YouTube famous and you got money, you can, you can afford to do those kind of things, I guess. Um, but enough about Dude Perfect. This is not about them. Uh, so in verse 4, my, the translation that I use is the NIV. It doesn't, it doesn't use the word anger specifically, but anger is what's implied here. Some, some translations use the word anger. What we know is that uh, this, this, song, this phrase probably sounds a little bit familiar. If you've read Ephesians chapter 4, right, Paul tells us this command. He says, do not let your anger lead you into sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul was referencing, and he was calling back to Psalm 4 when he wrote this down. David's talking about anger, people that lose their temper. The idea is that, that so many people will just operate on instinct, like we're, like we're some kind of carnal creature, Right? We will instinctually respond to sin. Uh, to, we will respond to anger by sinning, right? By acting on the anger. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, we'll just bottle it up, right? In an unhealthy way. We'll just let it sit and let it sit. And it, it will come out in other unhealthy ways. David says we should do the work and we should search our hearts, right? And not deal by instinct, but we should apply the gospel to these situations. It's so easy, you don't have to look very far to look out into the world and find things that make us angry. But God was gracious to us, right? We need to apply the gospel when we become angry. We should be gracious with others because God was gracious to us. We all know, right, the, the, the arrogant boss or maybe the egomaniac that we know that, that almost kind of gets off by, by, by losing their temper, right? They love to get angry. They love to, they love to have that feeling of, of, of power, right? It's, it's, it's a carnal instinct, we see it in those around us. But also think of times where, where we, can, we see it in our own life, right? This is how we, go, we, we do the work of searching our heart as we apply the things to our own life, not just where we see them out or in the people around us. <clears throat> in these times in our own life where we've either, we, we've either bottled things up in an unhealthy way or we've reacted and maybe snapped out of anger and later regretted it, if anybody's got kids in the room, like, go ahead and say your amen and get over it, right? Like, I didn't even make it to church this morning before I was snapping at my kids because they were getting on our nerves. We've all let our anger come out in a sinful way. But we need to ask ourselves, like, to, to do the work, what does he mean by search our heart, right? I think we just have to stop, not let the reaction come, and just ask ourselves some questions. It may not feel like it in the moment, but there is a healthy way to deal with anger. We need to ask ourselves, what do we really mean when we're angry? Like, what are we mad about? Is it because I'm prideful or is it because there's something that really needs to be dealt with? Right? We teach our children not to react. I teach my kids all the time, like self-control, self-control, right? But then as an adult, I go and I, I snap and I lose my temper, right? It's, it's, it's like a, it, I become a hypocrite really fast. We all do if we're honest with ourselves. But I think that a great indicator of spiritual maturity is how we react when we don't get our way. If you're taking notes, I think that's worth writing down. 
A great indicator of spiritual maturity is how we react when we don't get our way. Because children react. We come hardwired that way to just react out of instinct. But mature people stay calm. They trust God. They let things play out, even small things that get under our temper. They trust that God's in control. David's answer gives us more evidence for Christ. Right? He says that we need to offer the sacrifices of the righteous. He says, like, yeah, let's slow down. Let's search our hearts. But our sacrifices, aren't, they're not righteous within themselves. It's more so the heart behind the sacrifice. Even, ancient, even in uh, times before Christ, right? In the Old Testament times, the Israelites struggled with the heart behind their sacrifices. David doesn't tell him. He said, yeah, just go, you know, go make your sacrifice and, and, and check the box and be done and get it over with. No, right? He says, offer the sacrifices of the righteous. And we can't offer sacrifices righteously if there's anger in our heart. The book of James says that out of the same mouth comes praising and cursing for those that, God, that have been made in God's likeness. God created people in his image and we praise them and curse them with the same mouth. He says this should not be. Our sacrifices will always be tainted. No matter how good of a day, no matter how bad of a day, no matter if we just left connect group, right? Everything's good. Our sacrifices will always be tainted because of the sin that's in us. The only sacrifice that can truly be considered righteous is the sacrifice of Christ. And that's the one that David is ultimately referring to here. Because we are sinful, all of our sacrifices are worthless without the work of Christ, right? All of our sacrifices are worthless without the work of Christ. If we don't have Christ, we can sacrifice and sacrifice and do everything we can to earn God's glory. But it will never be good enough. Scripture teaches that. Only through Christ can we have trust and confidence that David calls his people to have. Only through becoming more mature in Christ, dealing with our anger in a spiritually healthy way, right? Can we find ourselves in stressful situations, in times of distress, when we don't see a way out, but we can stay calm, even keeled, and steady like we see David here in this psalm. All right, let's move on to the next one. The next one we see, this is verse 6. The next group I've called the pragmatics. The pragmatics. But before I get too far, I kind of want to talk through where I got this term. I want to make sure we're, we're clear on kind of the understanding of, of what I mean by this term pragmatism, right? Pragmatism typically is a positive thing, right? If I say, man, Liam is super pragmatic leader, right? That means Liam makes decisions not based on changing emotions, right? It's you look at something that's objective, something that's tangible. You take the emotion uh, out, of, out of making decision. And it's based on either practical results or some sort of data. Like, that's a good thing, typically. But oftentimes, good traits don't make good theological lenses. And they don't make good worldviews. The problem with pragmatism as a worldview is that we only come to God by what, for what we can get from Him, right? We're always looking for a result if we're a pragmatic. We look at verse 6. What were they interested in in verse 6? All they wanted was, who's going to bring us to prosperity? That's all they were worried about. And so if we come to Jesus for results, then, and what we, what, we, what we can get from him, then we really don't just come to Jesus, right? We come for, for Jesus, but what he can give us, not for himself. If I follow Jesus because I get to become a child of God, right? If I get all of the things that talk about in Scripture and health, wealth, and prosperity then I've revealed all I'm really interested in is, is the second piece, right? All I'm interested in is what I can get from God. And the point that I want to make is that is not the gospel. 
That is not the gospel. If our theology doesn't address hard times, if our theology doesn't address suffering, then we need to take a really hard look at maybe why we follow Jesus. Is Jesus the Lord of my life? Have I surrendered everything to him? Or is he just my genie in a bottle that I put up on a shelf and ask for him, ask him something when I need it? The pragmatic person changes allegiance based on short-term results and not ultimate truth. If we're in the Bible Belt, right, maybe Jesus will benefit me socially, he'll benefit me economically, then yeah, I'll follow Jesus. That's, that's a practical result. But when the world starts changing and it doesn't, it's not popular to be a Christian anymore, right, I'm going to have to endure suffering and trial maybe. No, you can keep that, right? That's what our world says so many times. I'll find something that works. I'll find something that gets me the result I want. The fact that the prosperity gospel is so accepted in our culture is because the, the main idol in our culture is the idol of ourself, right? Think about some of the messages that are preached in America today. What if we were to like live stream some of these to, to remote villages in Africa or to, to, to Southeast Asia where Bo and Lauren are going to go, right? What if we were to live stream some of, these, some of these messages that we see? Live your best life now. Just, just manifest things into existence, right? Maybe give us some money so that you can have your spiritual breakthrough and you can get what you want. That's nonsense, right? Like, I don't want to like lose my temper here, but the fact that that is so prevalent in our culture is just nonsense. That is not the gospel that we are talked about, that we are preached in Scripture. The only result that the gospel is interested in is a change of heart. It's the only result we should be focused on. The message that says we are hopeless without Christ, and because of his sacrifice, we can have life in his name. Not that plus whatever we want to get out of it. The gospel we preach and live by should be universal. If the gospel that we believe only applies to us in America, then we need to adjust it, right? There's forgiveness. If we've been wrong, if we've been led astray, we can't help that, but we can change it, right? We can turn. We can repent. That's what repent means, is to turn from a false gospel and believe the real thing. Look at David's answer. David's answer at the end of verse 6, he says, Let the light of your face shine on us. He says that these people are worried about their prosperity. Their answer is, where's the prosperity at? Like, where's what I'm going to get? David says, God, just give us the light of your face. Just give us your presence. That's all we need. That sounds familiar. Numbers chapter 6. You've probably heard this passage before, even if you don't, if you don't know it's from Scripture, right? It's called the priestly blessing. There's a worship song out that, that kind of quotes it. It says, the Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord makes his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. This was the message David had on his heart when he was responding to the people that were only interested in prosperity. The blessing that we need is God and his presence and his son Jesus. It's not more stuff. Regardless of our circumstances, the material things will never ultimately bring us peace. When the priests in the Old Testament... When they were charged to bless the Israelites, this would have been a very regular phrase, right? It would have been ritual. They would have known it. It would have been written on their hearts. They would know it very well. They were to use this message in good times and bad times and everything in between, right? No matter what was going on, when the priest would say this blessing, they would be reminded of God's goodness 
And they would be reminded that his goodness was not dependent on whatever circumstances were going on around them. His goodness was dependent that they had his presence and they should be thankful for it. That's why it was considered a blessing. We read in Psalms 1, if you remember, just a few weeks ago, the person that's blessed is the same one who lives and meditates on God's law, lives it out. They love God's law. They desire to, to, to uphold God's law. That's the true blessed person, right? In verse 7, David continues. He asked God, like, fill my heart with joy when my enemy's prospering. That should really be a red flag for us, right? Like, David says, look, my enemies, I want you to fill my heart with joy when they're prospering, not when I'm prospering. I, I wish I had more time to kind of go into the, to some of the, the science behind this, but, uh, or not the science, but maybe the detail, right? The, the theological um, DNA, right? I'm, I've spent too much time already, but as humans, we all have, we all have this, this idea of like justice and fairness that just kind of is hardwired into us, right? One of the things is, is, you know, when we read Genesis, we say we are created in God's image, right? That means that parts of God and attributes of God are communicated through us and to us as humans. And this idea of justice and fairness is one of those things that God communicates to us when he created us. We all come hardwired. One good way to look at this is you give one kid a piece of candy, you give another kid five pieces of candy. What phrase is coming next? That's not fair, right? That's not fair. We come hardwired that way. It bothers us when we see other people prosper, when they don't get what they deserve. It's hard to see people that are evil and, and people that do terrible things seem like they're coming out ahead from a worldly standpoint. So when we look in the world, we see all these people who are prospering, right? They're selfish, they're evil, they're sinful. We naturally wonder, like, why does God allow that to happen? But what do we know as Christians, right? We're a poor representation of that quality. We're a poor representation of God's justice, of God's character. But Christ was a perfect representation of that character. Christ, he, he fulfilled that and he represented that perfectly. And so what we see is that Jesus was the blessing that they were talking about in Numbers. His presence on earth was the light that we needed. Jesus had community with the Father. Jesus experienced the presence of the Father in a way that we can never understand. He truly delighted in the law of the Lord. He was truly blessed, like we talked about in Psalms 1, right? So that kind of forces us to ask ourselves some questions about what it means to be blessed. If Jesus is the example of what it means to be blessed, is worldly, pro is worldly prosperity the primary means in which God blesses us? We've all seen it, right? Hashtag blessed, got a new car, got a new job, right? Kids are healthy. None of those are bad things, right? But is that the primary way that God chooses to bless us? Does blessed means that we get the nice car, that we get the nice house and the good job and the perfect little family that we get to post on Instagram and get a bunch of likes, right? No. David says, God, while these pragmatic people are following you based on what they can get from you and then they're turning when they don't get what they want, God, just give me more of you. David says, I just want your presence. If our joy in the Lord is dependent on circumstances, then we need to ask ourselves if we're truly a follower of Christ or are we just being pragmatic? We just come to church and, 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 and worship and, and read our Bibles, whatever it is that we do. Do we just do that for a result? Or do we do it to just gain a relationship, to grow in our relationship with Jesus? 
That's the pragmatic. And I'm sorry I spent a little bit more time on that one. Y'all can tell that one kind of touches a nerve. But let's go to the last point. This is from verse 8. We've discussed the three common types of, of, of response that David saw, right? When things fell apart, whether it was Absalom chasing him, whether it was a, a famine or an agricultural crisis, all the people around him were responding. And David, he's addressed those people now. And so he's going to finish this psalm with almost like a bookend declaration. He started with a declaration of God's faithfulness, and he's going to finish with a declaration of God's faithfulness. He's acknowledged where all the people are, and now he's going to establish where David's at. What's he say in verse 8? He says, In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. The final point, if you're writing them down, is when Christ is the source of our security, we can sleep like a baby. David recognized that the world around him, the people around him, even his own family, right, could all be stripped away. It could all change. It could all be taken away uh, in, in an instant. The only way that David could have true peace is by resting in God and trusting in him and his presence because he would never change. He would never be taken away. If we worship God and we find our security in Christ, we can trust that he will never change, right? He will never fade away. He will never be stripped from us, no matter what this world throws at us. Nothing else can give us true peace like Jesus can. When we find ourselves in stressful situations or, or distress, when we say, God, like, I don't know what I'm going to do here. Like, I'm out. I'm out of ideas, right? When we find ourselves in those situations, what's one of the first things that it usually affects? David talks about it in verse 8. It's our sleep, right? We lose sleep. David said, I know these people are against me. I know the world around me is going crazy, but I'm going to lay down and catch a nap. I'm going to get an eight hours, right? I'm going to sleep just fine. It sounds crazy. It reminds me of the story of, of Jesus, right? When he's on the boat in the middle of a storm with some of his disciples. Where was Jesus at when the storm was raging? Jesus was sleeping. He was catching a nap, right? He'd been tired. Disciples were wearing him out. He had to catch up on his sleep. But Jesus could sleep because he knew his security was not dependent on the storm. His security was within himself, right? He knew he could control the storm. He knew he could control the water around the boat. His security was not in what was around him. And when we place our faith in Christ and the work that he did and his sovereignty, we can rest. We can have peace that nothing in this world can touch. No matter what's going on, no matter how bad or how crazy it gets, we can have true peace. David found himself here in a time of distress. We all find ourselves in times of distress, right? There's nothing we can do to avoid that or change that. Those times are coming, so we might as well prepare. But instead of acting like the responses uh, that we see in Psalms, or instead of acting like the disciples on the boat and panicking and freaking out, we can look to Christ and we can base our reaction on Him. And we can base our reaction on His character. He is stable. He is secure. And we can experience true spiritual rest by trusting in Him rather than our ever-changing circumstances. So as I wrap up the band, I'm going to ask you guys if y'all can go ahead and uh, kind of make your way back up here. There's one more example that I want to look at in Scripture. We've talked about David. We've talked about Jesus and his disciples. I wanted to touch on an example from Paul that talks about this idea of peace. 
And this passage is important, I think, to address because it's so misunderstood in our culture, particularly in the prosperity gospel culture, but I'm not going to get back down that, that rabbit hole, I promise. So if we, if we turn to Philippians, it's going to be on the screen if you don't want to turn there. The theme of really Paul's letter to the Philippians, the, whole, the theme of the whole book is really finding joy in the midst of, of trials and in the midst of suffering, right? He knew what David knew. Paul knew what David knew. Look at chapter 4. I want to start in verse 11. Y'all probably know that 13 is coming, but I want to start in 11. Paul says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance. Whether well-fed, whether hungry, whether living in plenty, or living in want, what comes next? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul says, I found the secret to peace, guys. I'm going to write it down. I'm going to give it to you. It's not the material things. It's not the substances. It's not the relationships. It's not the status, the, 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 the image, right? It's none of those things. The secret to peace and the secret that will allow you to lay down and catch a nap in the middle of the craziest time you can think of is Christ. Jesus. He is the blessing that allows us to find rest. He's the blessing from numbers that gives us access, that gives us relationship with Him. And He is the faithful servant from verse 3. God created us. God loves us. He wants what's best for us. And we don't always get to see like exactly how that's going to work out. But he's proven himself faithful throughout our lives, but even throughout history, right? He gave us a book of the story of his faithfulness. We can read it and learn it. And we can know that even though we don't see what's coming, we can trust that it's going to be fine and it's going to be according to his will. And that's ultimately going to be what's best for us. So I'm going to close. I'm going to have a prayer. And I just want to invite you to respond, right? I love that we, we have a song of response after the service. Every time I'm presented with the gospel or I'm presented with God's word, it stirs me to want to worship, right? It stirs me to want to respond. So whatever it is that you need to do today, I don't know if it's, maybe it's just as simple as just joining a connect group, right? Just being around other Christians, sharing a meal together, opening your Bible, learning God's word week after week. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe it's heart and soul. Maybe it's baptism, right? If you want to have the peace that we've talked about, it only comes through placing your faith in Christ. And so we want to have an opportunity to do that. There'll be an elder down here. If you want to, if you want to take that step, we would love to talk to you about that. We'll celebrate. But let me close in a prayer and then we'll respond in worship. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word. God, even in a, in a psalm, in a book that maybe we haven't read all the way through, God, we can find evidence of Jesus Christ. And God, you've given us the story of him. You've given us where he came from, what he did, the work he did, and what he secured for us for all eternity. God, through your word, you've given us the story of your faithfulness. You've given us experiences in our life when you've delivered us from things that we had no business being delivered from. 
God, thank you. And I just pray that we would call on that. We would call on your faithfulness, not ours, when we find ourselves in times of distress. God, I pray that if there's somebody in here that doesn't understand what that true peace feels like and looks like, God, that they would just choose to come to you today, to run to you with open arms and just allow you to work in their life. God, thank you for the worship team. I just pray over this time of worship that we would respond in faithfulness. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.